Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 17th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, just Tim Shiflett. Welcome, Tim. Good evening, sir. Yes, uh, good to have you. Catherine is um, on assignment, we'll say, on hiatus for the week. And so uh, it'll just be Tim and I t- this evening. But, you know, in the past, it's been just you and Catherine, and at times just me and Catherine. So we just sometimes will go just two of us, and it should work nicely. Uh, we're really excited about our guest. Um, Tim Shifflett and I have known each other a long time, and I think as long as we've known each other in politics, we have been watching on CNN Bill Snyder, our guest tonight. And so he's going to join us at 720, and we're going to um, – asking about his new book um and other things going on in the world of politics so but until then um somebody we really hadn't covered as much in the past few weeks is reemerged as our lead topic um the good news is there's not going to be a government shutdown there's been an agreement but the reason that it looks like donald trump may have folded so quickly um and not look for the toughest um deal on his what he wanted was because he knew that uh, he could then claim emergency action and build the wall that way. Uh, Tim, what do you think is going on with here with this pretty extreme political move? Oh, my. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on, on this. And, well, there's nothing to compare this to, to be honest with you, but you probably already knew that. He he actually just declared a national emergency, basically for political purposes. He declared a national emergency in order to keep a campaign promise when he couldn't uh, get it done legislatively like, you know, normal presidents do. Those that have just derisively called it a a, a fake national emergency. Well, you know what? Trump likes to use that word fake. This is a fake national emergency. There's no national emergency. If I'm not mistaken, there have been like 59 of these declared. 31 of them, I think, are, are active. And And we're talking about things like when Bush 43 said, you know, 9-11, that was a na- of course 9-11 was a national emergency. Uh, that's the sort of thing that's a national emergency. Or like when President Obama froze uh, foreign belligerent countries' assets, um, like they've done a number of times with Iran and with Russia. Those are national emergencies. That's when you declare national emergencies. This is no emergency. Uh, And and I want to say another thing. For those of you who did not watch it, that press conference that Trump had the other morning where he declared this was bizarre, even by Donald Trump's standards. Did you see it, David? I'll tell you how bizarre it was. I saw the clips on Saturday Night Live. They didn't do just stop and do jokes. They just played like 30, 45 seconds of it straight, and it didn't need uh, you know a laugh track or punchlines thrown in. I mean, it was just all over the place schizophrenia. Um, you're absolutely right. Rambling, I guess, is a good uh, way to describe it. it I, I, I knew something bad was coming. You, you, you could see the podium, and there were no teleprompters there. That meant he was going to come out there 
And you know how it goes when he reads from prepared texts. He just deviates from them and starts talking off of the top of his head. And here we went with just outright lies, uh, attacks on the media, bragging on his accomplishments. I'd say he is five minutes into his talk before he started talking about what he came out there to talk about to start with he was talking about lawsuits north korea china it was just off the rails uh and 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 what did we have when it was over well we had a lot of head scratching uh but apparently he's gonna go through with this and they're gonna uh Take a lot of money away from, you know, uh, military pro- procurements for for housing and uh, for health care and for different things like that, from military construction. And uh, I could only find two places in previous emergencies where presidents touched any appropriated money at all, and all they did then. Uh, like with Bush at 9-11, was move around military money inside the department it was earmarked for to start with, uh, you know, to, to get it moving faster or something. It, it, was, it was nothing like this. Don't you think this president has created a constitutional crisis? I mean, R- Article One absolutely names Congress as the branch of government with uh, – uh, you know, spending the money and deciding where it goes. No such power is gra- is granted to the president in Article Two of the Constitution. I checked every word of it today to make sure. Uh, so now what? Now, what yeah, happens? I mean, you're absolutely right. All spending bills must start in the House of Representatives. It's like a core tenet right. of American Government 101. Um, that even, you know, it's part of the core curriculum, not even for political science majors. Um, so so he's just obviously deviated from that. An- another big problem was in his um, speech, he had, or what, if speech is using that term liberally, um, he said, I don't have to declare a national emergency. This will just get the wall built faster. I mean, he said something very close to that effect. And they say that when the lawsuits are brought, that that's going to uh, be his downfall, uh, Tim. Where do you think the you know this goes in the court cases or in the courts? Well, you know that's a good question. Trump addressed that in a very very bizarre fashion. We're going to do this, then we're going to get sued, then we're going to go to this district court, and we're going to lose. We're going to go that court and win. We're going to go this court and lose, and we'll wind up in Supreme Court where hopefully. Uh, they do the right thing because they're fair, blah, 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 blah. And, and again, you're scratching your head thinking, what what did he even just say? Uh, we already know this is headed to the courts. The ink hadn't dried on what he signed before um, the lawsuit started coming. Public Citizen started it off. Now, they're an advocacy group, and they're representing landowners along the border down there that may have their land, you know, their private land seized in order to construct this wall. Uh, I don't know if people know this, but we'd have to put the wall on our side of the border because the border's smack dab in most places in the middle of the Rio Grande River. So, I mean, you know, it couldn't... We could we couldn't put a fence there or or a wall or whatever you want to call it. Now they put it on this side. The states of California and the states of New York have, have also already uh, announced that they're going to sue. But I want to say something here about that. I think it's a mistake for Congress to depend on the courts to straighten this out for them. Uh, they, they they shouldn't do that. They ought to move on their own. For a long time now, you know, Congress has been ceding power to presidents. This president has just taken it to a new uh, new level. I mean, you and I both know, David, that, that he insists on getting everything his way. 
like with that bizarre statement, I didn't need to do this, but I'd much rather do it faster, blah, 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 blah. I think congressional Democrats are, are going to try to stop this move. Uh, they can introduce a resolution to terminate. And if it passes, which it will in the House, then it goes over to the Senate. And that's going to put Senate Republicans in a tough position. You know how some of them have been talking. Susan Collins and some of the others and Rubio. Oh, this is just awful. He shouldn't have done this. It's the wrong thing to do that. Well, you know what? Now they're going to be forced to vote on the issue. Or do you think McConnell will stop this uh, from even going to the floor for a vote? Yeah, McConnell just doesn't seem willing at all to stand up Donald Trump. I mean, yeah, Paul Ryan seemed pretty um, you know, toothless when he would stand up to Donald Trump, but even he would even feign opposition, whereas uh, McConnell doesn't even seem to even do that. Uh, and another aspect of this whole thing, Tim, is I've heard a lot of right, people on the right don't like how this was done. You know, they talk, they would talk about you know Democrats with particularly President Obama with uh, executive power overreach. Well, this is far, you know, more of an overreach than anything that President Obama did with any executive actions, and actually several things Donald Trump has been much more of an overreach. And so some of them are actually willing to stand by their principles and say, you don't govern this way. This is not what happens in a conservative constitutional democracy in their mind. Um, and kudos to them for, you know, standing by their principles, do you think there's enough of them either in the Congress, in the Senate, in the conservative media to create a real pushback against Donald Trump, or do you think there'll just be a few of them and there'll just be a few more never-Trumpers than there were before? Well, I, th I think we'll be fine in the House, and I think we're going to get a pretty good little handful of Republicans to go with us so that it passes with enough votes that we can call it a bipartisan measure. The Speaker really needs to be able to call it that once it's passed. If it's all Democrats and all Republicans, the game is up right there because that would give McConnell the exact excuse he needs to uh, just ignore uh, whatever they pass and not even bring it to the floor. Uh, but if this resolution to terminate should get, say, oh, 20 Republican votes, and it really should get 20 Republican votes, then, then, then we're fine, and then the pressure goes over to Mitch McConnell. But I just wonder if McConnell... It's just not going to do it. He's going to look at one thing only, what politically is best for him and for Republicans as they head into the next congressional elections. And if he thinks for one moment that standing with Trump is the thing to do, then that is exactly what Mitch McConnell is going to do because he doesn't have to look past the Republican primaries in this case, does he? he I mean, uh, that's who they're trying to appease now. It's not the American people. The, the, uh, a Fox News poll, for crying out loud, showed that 56% uh, of the American people oppose Trump declaring this emergency to build that wall. Included in that is 20% of Republicans. Mitch McConnell's not going to look at that, is he? Yeah, 20 percent may not be enough, but that's where I think some voices stand up. I heard Mike Lee of Utah had come out against this. I saw another right-wing um, pundit calling you know, uh, Donald Trump a uh, little Franco wannabe, referring to the Spanish dictator from you know, decades ago. Um, I think in Coulter, even though you know, the credibility gap's a little bit uh, – Long there, she came out against him. Do you think like a Sean Hannity or – and he's had a show since Donald Trump did this – or Rush Limbaugh tomorrow on their new – on his uh, uh, radio program will speak out against Donald Trump? Now, I'm giving no, them some no, more credibility no. than I usually do. 
but no. they're the kind of people that shape Republican thoughts. So, Tim, you Ab- think no? Absolutely, they're going to be right with Trump. Uh, it's almost like if they say something that, that that they don't like that Trump did, the next day you can watch their show again, and they will come around to whatever talking line the White House has. Uh I, 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 you know, I, I think the White House stays in contact with them all the time. Those guys, and I think they're going to toe the line uh, with whatever Trump wants to do. Uh, I, I think that they'll spread it out to social media and say this is the greatest move in the history of the world. There's one up on Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Our president is brilliant. He meant to do this all along. There is an emergency at the border. Uh, I mean, look, you saw the CNN uh, guy stand up, Acosta. I believe it was him. And asked Trump a question, and he cited figures from Trump's own administration, and Trump stood there and told him it's a fake question because you're the fake news. Trump called statistics from his own government fake. Down is is up, up is down – no, nothing is real, and that's just that's just where Trump likes it. Because in keeping this kind of thing going, he can just basically get anything he he wants. Look, he hasn't had to veto a thing since he's been president. He's had a Congress that's gone right along with him on everything, and that's why I'm going to have to see Mitch McConnell let this thing come to a vote uh, before I believe he'll ever do it. Yeah, and, and he may not because it's going to really depend. Because if just it's just Cory Gardner and Susan Collins senators are in trouble, that's not going to be enough. It's going to have to be uh, more senators. It's got to be the um, senator whose name escapes me from Nebraska that's been pretty anti-Trump, uh, Mike Lee. You know, maybe does it Ted Cruz who seems to be this big constitutionalist that dreams one day of being on the Supreme Court. Does he stand up for the Constitution and stand up to Donald Trump? Um, you know, we shall you know, see. Standing up, standing up and saying this stuff is one thing. Getting out there and getting on the record with a vote, as we have seen with these Republicans, is quite another. It doesn't do any good to complain publicly or in private to their fellow to the Democrats up there or stuff like that. They're going to have to get up there and vote to stop Trump. they got to pass legislation to stop him. They can do it, and it's going to take them to do it, too. Democrats can only do so much, right? Yes, it's going to have to be some Republicans for two reasons. One, most importantly, they control the Senate, and Mitch McConnell uh, controls the legislative process in that body. And two, and I think I've been uh, listening to our guest book, Things carry more weight when they have a bipartisan nature throughout our country's history. And so if there's some bipartisanship, it's going to create more um, weight with the American people um, when you know Donald Trump is stood up to. Uh, t- Tim, you mentioned facts. And then I, one of this past week I sent you that tweet from Donald Trump, or maybe two weeks ago, where he basically dismissed facts. Uh, in a tweet, um, yeah. that that was just that tells you where we're at. That you know something to the effect of facts uh, can be fake. Uh, I mean, it's just you know, sad. Hey, thanks. Trump alluded to this a little the other day. He and and his uh, aide Miller, uh, fool that writes a lot of his speeches, said so in so many words too. Trump means to physically have some of this wall built before the presidential election so he can point to it and say, look at there, promise kept, we're building the wall, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing that other thing. I mean, he, he's obsessed with doing it, and he he's, he's really, really means to do this. Yeah, it's kind of like that, you know, T-shirt that was popular in the late 80s, early 90s, had Malcolm X and a gun looking out of a window, and it said, by any means necessary. 
And uh-huh. I think that's where a lot of, in particular, Republicans in today's um, government are, that they want to get their agenda done by any means necessary. And if it means laying waste to Democratic institutions, and I don't mean the Democratic Party, I mean democracy, they don't really care. And so if it means declaring a national emergency when there's not one, there's not been a terrorist attack, there's not been a horrific um, you know, natural disaster that impacted – you know, multi-states, that kind of thing. He's just going to do it just because he wants to get his wall done. And one thing I also find kind of scary about this is the more you hear him talk, the wall is his legacy. You know, where a lot of presidents, they're going to have multifaceted pieces of their legacy. Maybe they bring a peace process in a certain region of the world. They want to have a good economy or prosperity. Um, they want to do all these different things to have a legacy. Uh, Donald Trump's is to build this wall um, just to show he can do it. I mean, that's what it seems like. It's a a bit of a statue um, to himself, Uh, and that's why I guess he's so you know big into it. Tim, do you kind of see that too? That it's a a legacy item for him. Yeah, but isn't it ironic that before he was elected, he used to criticize Obama all the time saying, oh, he ought to be impeached for using all these executive orders on immigration and other things. It's dangerous, and and it, it, the Supreme Court ought to throw it out, and he ought to go to Congress, but he's not a deal-maker, but I'll be a deal-maker, and this and that and the other. Well, And he uses these executive orders and circumvention of Congress more than any president in the history of this Congress. He's just ignoring Congress. If they pass something, if they oppose anything, he's just basically saying, I'm ignoring you, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And, you know, if it's to violate the Constitution or whatever else, hey, my lawyers tell me it's okay. I mean, come on. At what point does somebody just stand up and say, Oh, stop this. Yeah. I, I don't know when the Republicans are going to have um, the, um, you know, the fortitude, whatever you, whatever you call it, to actually stand up to Donald Trump on something. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, maybe you could say at our party, always oh, stand up to him and pose him too much on everything, although it, there's just a lot there, I would say, argue. But the Republicans have been unwilling to stand up to him on virtually anything. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll kind of see, you know, where this goes in the coming weeks. I mean, that's the thing is if things can stop him from diverting money and really a lot of bricks aren't laid, a lot of blocks, what concrete's not poured, and then he, you know, doesn't have a second term or anything like that, then um, maybe this goes nowhere, and there's you know no lasting harm done, if you will. But I, I don't know the process of how does money get allocated beyond what you know Congress gave, and I don't think that was really for much of the metal barriers. It was for a few miles. Um, but how, how quickly can he get that process rolling? Do you have any idea, Tim? Well, the uh, the main problem that may stop him is is this stuff takes time to go through the courts, and I imagine a lot of judges are going to issue a lot of stays on on anything going forward until they make decisions. And if he gets rulings against him, then they got to go to the next level. Uh, it's possible that none of this would get done before the the next election, which would drive him out of his mind. Uh, and another thing to think about here, this is the golden opportunity for Congress to take back some of that power that they've been ceding to presidents. I know they passed this law in 1976, but Donald Trump's not following the letter of this law. Uh, They cannot let a president get away with grabbing money that's been appropriated and earmarked for a specific purpose and then taking it and moving it over to something else, something political, just to keep a campaign promise and creating an emergency that doesn't exist. They can't let him get away with this. I know the courts could stop a lot of this, but really, 
don't you think Congress needs to be the one to step in and say, we're stopping this? It would be better, and it would show a lot more political courage on a lot of them's parts, including Mitch McConnell. Uh, one final question on this. Tim, has any time that a, a national emergency has been declared, have the courts ever even had to get involved? Uh, I don't re- recall anything like this ever come ever, ever coming up generally like i said when they declare a national emergency it is a bona fide national emergency if courts have been involved it's been at, at a very uh low level on uh, a rather insignificant level and nothing has ever splashed across the supreme court uh, uh from some from something like this. Like I said, you you declare a national emergency on 9-11. You declare a national emergency to freeze uh, Iranian and Russian assets when they take belligerent military actions against other countries. That's what these things are for. Uh, uh, you know what? Uh, they better not let this Pandora's box open. Nancy Pelosi warned them of that, too. What's the Democratic president going to declare a national emergency? I would declare climate change one immediately if I could, and that is a national emergency. And don't think the Democrats haven't done thought of that, okay? If you open this box, we're going to jump in it too, right? Yeah, I mean, could. And, I mean, I think it would be better to follow the you know, true democratic process, but if Republicans, let's say we had at some point in the future, we have 55 uh, votes in the U.S. Senate, and they filibuster after filibuster, when you're trying to do something on climate change, that could be a situation where you felt like you had to um, evoke something like this, and it wouldn't be the first time then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's That's- go ahead and move on. Let's go ahead and move on to our next topic. Um, something we discussed off and on for the past year on the Kudzu Vine was Amazon's Headquarters 2, HQ2. Um, and a few months ago, it um, it was announced that they were going to split it between the Metro D.C. area and Brooklyn, New York, or Queens, mm-hmm. somewhere in the New York City, the, the, the greater metropolitan area and their boroughs. And um, just in this past week, after a lot of opposition, um, Amazon announced that they would not build HQ2, the half of it, in New York. Now, they haven't said where those um, jobs and that you know, construction goes, uh, but Tim, what's your first thought to um, them pulling out so quickly of the New York part of this project? Well, this certainly came out of nowhere. I mean, Governor Cuomo and and Mayor de Blasio, you know, are are I guess they're big losers here. Uh, they they were two guys that were really all for this thing. They were promoting it heavily, and right up until the last minute, both of them thought, you know, it, it was a done deal. And suddenly, they just. Uh, Let's pull the plug. Uh, they cited what growing political opposition to subsidies, uh, uh, but the cost is twenty-five thousand jobs and two and a half billion dollars worth of construction. Now I know that the, that the New York City and the state had offered about three billion in tax incentives and. Uh, um, I also know that a bunch of elected officials opposed the deal, and, of course, Representative Ocasio-Cortez was, was, you know, the best known of them, so she seems to be the voice of this. Uh, A lot of of them said they opposed it for reasons of, you know, the usual stuff, corporate welfare and the fact that, Amazon is is very anti-union and does and and will resist any temp, attempts, you know, to to organize anything that they were going to build there. Uh, but a majority of the local residents up there 
apparently supported it being there. Um, Cuomo blamed it on the state senate. I'm not sure where he was going with that, but this uh, this really uh, had to hurt New York City. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm not really sure what to, else to say about it. Uh, they said they're going to move the jobs. You know, uh, they're not going to build another headquarters anywhere. They're just going to spread these jobs out among other places. And uh... Yeah, and it's really going to be for the next project. Now, I will say this. There is a larger federal conversation that if there was some way that for it could take place so states, you know, wouldn't have to give away the shop, if you will, to recruit companies. I mean, I think that's a very valuable conversation. But in the current reality, you know, if if Alabama's offering this, that, and the other, and Mississippi says I'm going to be, you know, tough and I'm going to stand tall, then Alabama's going to get the factory. And if if Georgia says, man, we're not going to give these breaks, we're going to be tough, and they're looking at Georgia and, and North Carolina, they're just going to go to North Carolina. And so it's just, it's you may not like the game, but the game's going to be played whether you like it or not. Um, so mm-hmm. if there's a way at the federal level, you could then not give away the tax subsidies and or you couldn't give away but so much. Um, that might be something realistic. Uh, but if it's just, you know, one state, you know, we're going to do it this way, uh, that's, you know, you're going to hurt yourself. And we know uh-huh. just in our community, they're closing out a major Georgia power plant. Nobody telling how many hundreds of jobs that's going to end up being, and how you know that's going to impact the local community. New York can get away with this because they have four percent unemployment. That area is going to grow with or without Amazon. It grew without them, and it'll grow with it, and it'll grow without them in the future. You know, to me, what will, the whole do, time, poli- what, what will it do politically, both to those that? Uh, supported this move there and engineered this move there, like the governor and the mayor, and and how will it politically affect those who vocally opposed it, like Representative uh, Ocasio-Cortez? I think it makes her look more powerful that she can stop something like this, although people that, you know, maybe they don't like their job and thought, oh, they could get one of these jobs, um, they might not like that. Um, it's going to hurt the people that are in charge of factory and job recruitment in New York because they may not be able to then deliver in the end what they wanted. Um, but then, of course, other cities are going to benefit because then they want to compete with New York, and New York's pretty tough to compete with at times because uh, New York's got just a little bit going on. Um, being the largest but, city in the um, uh, but, but Amazon now, is the richest company in the world now, it is. and it appears and it, appear, it appears here that they were saying, you know what, we're doing what we're doing, and if we get any blowback, then we're gonna walk away. I mean, does that not what it looked like to you? Yeah, I mean, they're just going to go somewhere else. I guess they're like, hey, we're going to go where we're wanted. Um, now, t- thinking about if Jeff Bezos and, and the people making this decision for Amazon really thought, where can we have the most impact? Now, I said, you know, some rural area, that would be great, but but more realistic. You know, they may have wanted to be in a big city. We all know that Detroit, say, has been on really hard times in recent decades. Given the transformation that's going to happen in the car industry, they're only going to be in worse straits going forward. Could they not say, hey, we are going to go ahead and build HQ2. We're going to go to a city, either Detroit or a city like Detroit, and help that city out. Give them an infusion of jobs that are going to be here when the automobile industry continues to gear down further. Because as yeah, we well. move from people owning cars to driverless cars that they call through their phone and everybody including the director of innovation at gm that wrote a book on it says that it's going to happen a city like that's going to decline what if someone like amazon came in with all these jobs and kind of lessened that blow um well then jeff bezos could could be more the hero 
they could and they would look like a hero then it, it would get it would be great public relations for them but i i think they pretty much already announced exactly what they're going to do and they apparently are going to are going to stick with it and i think one one reason they're so happy is the the main thing they wanted was a headquarters in the washington dc area well with the northern virginia site they have exactly what they needed, and, and they're not, you know, interested in doing anything else. I think they're sending a message here to any future cities that want their business that, you know, here's the way we do it, and you'll like it or, or not. I, I, you know, I, I think they were just flexing their muscles when – uh, they had some opposition to to what they were going to do because they could have gone ahead and, and, and built that thing despite the opposition because the opposition was pretty much all going to be vocal, I think. I don't think anybody was going to be able to be doing anything to change the deal that had been made. So there we are. Yeah, well, let's kind of talk about another aspect of this thing. And before they announced New York or uh, Virginia, and honestly, it kind of got leaked even before it got announced, um, they announced that they were going to build another component, not a headquarters, but but another component of Amazon's um, puzzle in Nashville. Now, obviously, this New York um, situation does not impact uh, the Nashville um location but tim you you mentioned a bill that was put forth in the um tennessee legislature this past week and given that the tennessee legislature governorship the whole thing is republican um and if this bill starts to get any momentum it could play into this tell us about that bill well it's called the natural marriage defense act house bill 1369 uh to Republican legislators, one from each um, house of the legislature, filed it. The bill says basically that the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage uh, back in 2015 uh, simply does not apply to Tennessee since they already had their own marriage laws on the books and that basically marriage is between one man and one woman, and the bill also, if it becomes law, would instruct all county clerks and any other elected officials that have anything to do with it to follow the Tennessee law. And to it's basically a, a law designed to stop gay marriage uh, in the state of Tennessee. Uh, but right now, no committee is currently considering this bill. It hasn't moved that far. So it might not go anywhere. But let's say it did go somewhere. This could really cause some severe economic harm in Tennessee. Um uh, we're talking about professional sports, college sports. We're talking about the entertainment industry in a big, big way. I mean, I mean, they're, they're the capital of, you know, country music and have been since the 1930s. Um, a, lo- a lot of that might might leave them. A lot, uh, Nashville, you know, has been growing in surges. A lot of tech technological companies have been coming in there it's an ultra modern city now um not not just nashville the great big city of memphis knoxville chattanooga those are big cities what what would happen economically to tennessee i couldn't imagine anything good happening um there's another thing here david that's very interesting according to pew research a little bit over half of all Tennessee voters describe themselves as evangelical Christians. Now, do I see a political angle emerging here or what? 
Yeah, I mean, it seems that they didn't really realize that, you know, in 2002, a lot of these things went on the ballot and they passed. But in the past, say, 16 years, um, support for those kind of, you know, pieces of legislation have really plummeted. I think maybe you saw some in 2004. Uh, I mean, they're just they're just not what they were, if you will, at the ballot box. People's minds change so rapidly. And it kind of reminds me of um, in the, I guess, early 90s, uh, Arizona was like the final state not to have uh, to, to recognize the MLK holiday. And uh-huh. they would be so far out of step that they may get that kind of reaction. And, and you know, sports is one of the first things to really uh, take a stand in that case. Um, you know, looking at the co- composition of particularly the NFL, because they talked about that this, they were going to pull the Super Bowl. Um, but if if this legislation looks so backwards to people, and I'm sure it would, then would a Amazon-type industry that has yet to probably build the um, structure that they're going to house these jobs in, that would be a pretty easy one to pull, wouldn't it, Tim? Yeah, I, th- I, I, I think I think it would. Um, you know, while 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 you were talking, I was I, I was sitting here thinking of something else. You know, David, the Supreme Court is not the same Supreme Court that it was even a year ago. Do you think that these two guys just want to see if they could somehow this thing passed into law? Knowing it's going to get all this blowback, willing to take the economic impact, which they in their heads are going to think is short term, willing to accept all the blowback from all the groups, willing, even wanting to get these lawsuits coming at them so that they can take this thing to the Supreme Court and try to overturn the Supreme Court decision of 2015. I mean, possibly, if that's really what they're after, but do they realize what it would do to their state if they lost some of these industries? Uh, you know, we mentioned in Chattanooga, there's, a, a I guess, the, the North American headquarters for Volkswagen. Some of these European uh-huh. companies are, are probably, they have a different mindset than even an American-based company. Uh, would have, and the American-based company would probably not be a good mindset uh, for what these two legislators from Tennessee, legislators from Tennessee, are yeah, thinking. But you, you, um, you, you understand these guys are 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 in are into the values aspect of this. They are not into the economic aspect of this. To them. There is good and evil, right and wrong, and to them, no matter what it does to their state pro or con, gay marriage is simply evil, and they have to oppose it, and they have to stop it, and they are willing to risk everything, including the economy of that state, to get this done. So... And how do you reason with people like that? Yeah, uh, I mean, values are an intractable thing, right? Yeah, and I mean, sometimes just understanding, you know, where the people are um, uh-huh. is important to do. Although, you now one thing we've got to realize, this is a state that in a Democratic wave year had Phil Bredesen, popular, uh, multi-term, uh, governor, former governor, won every state in the, or I'm sorry, every county in the state. The last time he was on the ballot, he lost, and it wasn't really that close to Marsha Blackburn, which is not, you know, she's not seen as the most qualified person ever to be on the Tennessee ballot. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say so. That state is still politically, um, you know, not. What we might think, sometimes when you go to Nashville, you go to Chattanooga or Memphis, and I've been to all three cities, um, two of them far more recently than the other one, even Knoxville as well where the University of Tennessee is, those places are are much more progressive, and I think we have one sense of the state, but outside of those four uh, cities, I I think Tennessee is a vastly different place um, 
even in, in the way it's, e- you know, even sent. more so now than some of its sister southern states. Uh, like I said, over according to Pew Research, over half of the registered voters in that state describe themselves as evangelical Christian. Those people are not located in the cities. Those people are located out in the counties and in the rural areas. Marsha Blackburn absolutely wiped the floor up with Phil Bredesen, a man who had won every county in Tennessee before. Yeah, and Tim, one more thing you got to uh, keep in mind is just you can love God without hating His people. Uh, those can mm-hmm. be mutually exclusive. Tim, I'm really excited hey. right now. I want to bring on our guest um, towards, the, towards the end of the show, um, longtime political uh, contributor at CNN Political Director, Mr. Bill Snyder. Welcome, Mr. Snyder. Thank you. I had trouble getting through. Oh, I'm sorry about that if it was anything on our end, or we'll even apologize for Blog Talk Radio. But, <laughs> but good to have you now. Um, and, and in Thank addition you. to your work at CNN, um, you also are a professor at George Mason University, and you just wrote a brand-new book, Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. Um, my first question yes. to you is, how did it become so ungovernable? What happened was, happened 50 years ago. Uh, what we, our politics has generally been about divisions of interest, labor versus business. When you have a division of interest, they can be negotiated. They can be compromised. But when you have a division of values, which is what started in the 1960s, you can't compromise values. They're matters of right and wrong. So on issues that have become prominent in politics in the last 50 years, compromise has become more and more difficult. And each party appeals to a different segment of Americans. I call it the old America and the new America. And they differ on just about everything. Yes, I've been listening to your book um, this past week or two, and you mentioned the 1960s and how that was such an important um, decade in American history. And I've even said in the past, a lot of times you can almost define the two parties, um, how they view the 1960s was on by and large it good with civil rights and other things and and women having more empowerment, or was it bad, some of the lessening of uh, social norms? why do you think the 60s were such a pivotal decade to our current political situation? Because a new movement emerged in the 60s. I call it the New America, which challenged the traditional values that a lot of Americans cherish and hold fast to. They challenged them on sexual matters. You began to hear stirrings of gay rights and gay liberation. You had women's liberation. You had the civil rights era. The 60s weren't just about the emergence of new constituencies, which became politically conscious, like blacks and women and young people. It was also about the fact that uh, you, had a, you had a backlash. It started with Barry Goldwater. Then you had it with George Wallace. All the changes of the 60s, which lots of people have written about, also created a tremendous right-wing backlash. And that right-wing backlash produced Richard Nixon. It produced Ronald Reagan. And it's ended up giving us Donald Trump. It's all a backlash to the changes of the 60s. Yes. Also, early in your book, you mentioned that, um, you know, the old axiom that Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local. And then you say now, all politics is national. And I can feel that in what happens. Also, you mentioned race. And uh, Max Cleland, a former senator from here in Georgia, used to say, in the South, all politics is racial. And I'm not so sure it shouldn't have been all in America for a lot of folks. All politics is not racial. Um how did it change over from where Tip O'Neill saw it to where you mentioned and then kind of play into what Max Cleland had said? Because all the values that became big issues in American politics, issues like abortion, issues like war and peace, Vietnam War, now more lately the Iraq War, all those issues were really national issues. And those are the issues that people really get energized by. They got excited about national issues, both the new forces that emerged in the 60s, the women, the gays, the minorities, the immigrants, and the backlash against those. Those were the religious rights started to emerge in the 1960s, and they all became energized by national interest. The religious right basically 
was angry, has been for 50 years, angry at the federal courts and at the Supreme Court. That's why a lot of people are surprised that the religious right has been very strong in its support for Donald Trump, because you wouldn't think that religious Christians, fundamentalist Christians, would see much in common with Donald Trump. I spoke to someone on the religious right, and they said, look, I wouldn't want Donald Trump to be my Sunday school teacher, but he's delivered the one thing we've been waiting for for 50 years. He gave us the Supreme Court. That's what we care about. All those issues are national issues. They're not local issues. Yes. One final question about the book, and I'm going to pass it to Tim, who's going to ask about some political goings on today. And that's kind of the answer to your question or, or that you posed in your title. How does America become governable again? Well, what has always happened in the past is a crisis emerges. I mean, it doesn't have to be a war and peace crisis. It could be, it could be climate change. It could be uh, civil rights. It could be an energy crisis. But this country is very difficult to govern, I argue in my book, because it was designed that way. It was designed by people who wanted limited government, government with limited power. And as a result, it's very tough to govern the United States because you have checks and balances. You have separation of powers when one party controls one branch and another party controls another branch like we have now. Then they can't necessarily get along. They will get along if everybody is facing a real crisis. It can be an international crisis. It can be a national crisis. But in a crisis, America works beautifully. Because the public demands that something has to be done. And if you don't do something about this problem, you're going to pay a price. When politicians hear that, they respond and they act. Without a crisis, it doesn't really work at all. So my feeling is, you know, if we have a crisis, the system will suddenly function. But you have to have a crisis, like the financial crisis of 2008. Yes, and I, so I'm taking it that the current crisis uh, about the border wall is not that crisis. It is not that crisis. The president is saying it is, but if you look at the polls, most Americans, especially those who live along the border, they don't see any border crisis. They're not sure what the president is talking about. Yes. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Tim Shifflett, who's going to ask about some more questions of the day. Tim? My pleasure. Good, good evening, Mr. Snyder. Thank you for being with us tonight. My uh, pleasure. You wrote Sorry to be a little late. article. <laughs> No problem at all, because we can run over a little bit. <laughs> you wrote okay. in a recent article that the mood among Democrats nationally right now is rage. First, rage. Yes. is that enough to win in 2020? And second, what type of nominee does rage toward Donald Trump produce? Well, that's a very good question, because Democrats have to face that right now. Uh, rage usually uh, gets people to vote for someone who's angry, uh, for someone who wants to be the complete opposite of Donald Trump, and that could get Democrats in trouble. If they nominate, say, Bernie Sanders, who's now thinking about running, I think, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible. We've learned over the years that it's not impossible to elect just about anybody. But uh, if people are real, if Democrats are really angry, they may go very far to the left, and in that case, they're going to get in trouble, and it's going to be tough to elect someone uh, opposed to Donald Trump. Uh, if they elect Joe Biden, if they nominate, say, Joe Biden, it might be a lot easier because he's well-known. People feel safe with him. He's very different from Donald Trump because they don't think he's going to create uh, problems the way Trump has done. The Democrats don't really know the answer to that question. They have probably 24 candidates who are going to run in 2020, and there's no way of predicting who's going to catch fire. They're all waiting for one of them to catch fire, and that's very unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Now, one of them that has been uh, something of a, a, both a darling of the party and, and a media darling, I suppose, is Beto O'Rourke, of course, from, from yes. Texas. Mm -hmm. But a recent poll showed that about one-third of voters uh, do not know who Beto O'Rourke even is. So... Can he be a genuine national candidate with those numbers, or, or, or was his propelling to national heights just an anomaly in the midterm? Well, what happened was a lot of Democrats saw a video of Beto O'Rourke. That's the first time they've ever seen him. And he mm -hmm. was answering a question at the state convention of Democrats in Texas. And he mm -hmm. gave a beautiful answer. The, the, the video called it 
the perfect answer. It had to do mm-hmm. with uh, his response to football players in the NFL who kneeled during the national anthem. Um, he gave a very moving and compelling answer for Democrats. It was a liberal answer. They loved it. They fell in love with him, really. Uh, mm-hmm. And those Democrats who saw it were enraptured. And one of the things that created the, the movement for better O'Rourke, remember he only ran for senator from Texas, one state, big state, but only one state. So there's no surprise that most voters don't know who he is. He, he's been in Congress, but he was a local congressman. He's not yet a known national figure. But mm-hmm. he caught on because that video went, it went viral. Everybody saw that video. And what they saw in it was Beto O'Rourke had a quality that voters, particularly Democrats, are missing in Donald Trump. That quality, in one word, is civility. He seemed to be a man, Beto O'Rourke seems to be a guy who just has a great deal of civility and respect and honesty that is going to, you know, Democrats think will do very well in the national election next time. So he could really build on that, uh, but of course he didn't win. And so there's no question that if he becomes the nominee, Donald Trump will never stop calling him my opponent, the loser, which is the way Trump mm-hmm. talks with his New York accent, the loser. <laughs> the loser. <laughs> so uh, another another candidate who caught fire last year, of course, and one that's close to our hearts down here, and uh, is Stacey Abrams. Um, and and she uh, universe pretty much universally was given high marks for her response to the State of the Union speech. So uh, she's on the tongues of a, a lot of people right now in the party. Uh, but we know uh, another thing. We know that the voters have short memories historically in America. Knowing that, would it, politically speaking, be better for Stacey Abrams to be looking at, say, a run for the U.S. Senate next year or to wait to run for a rematch against Governor Kemp in 2022 and tempt the fates a little bit there. Well, in her case, as in the case with Beto O'Rourke, it's better to have won something. Beto O'Rourke uh-huh. did not beat did not beat Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. She did not win the election for governor. So the result mm-hmm. is a lot of people don't know who she is. Uh, she did make the response to the State of the Union, and that got very good reviews. But basically, if you want to run for president, you've got to look like a winner. And mm-hmm. that means you really have to win something. So, you know, Beto O'Rourke is actually considering, instead of running for Senate, he may run against John Cornyn. Instead of running for president, he may run for the Senate against John Cornyn in Texas. And a lot of people think that would be a wise move for Stacey Abrams as well, because to to run for the presidency, having lost the last major office he ran for, that's not a great position to run from. But make no mistake about it. The 2020 election will be a referendum on Donald Trump, period. If people are really upset and angry with Trump, as many Americans are right now, and they're not just Democrats, they're going to vote for just about anybody who looks like they can get rid of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, then, knowing that, is the ability to beat Donald Trump the chief asset that Democratic primary voters are going to be looking for when they choose their nominee? Yes, that is something that's very high in their minds. They're desperate the word rage, which I wrote in my column, the word rage is accurate. They're enraged at Donald Trump the way they were once enraged at George W. Bush during the Iraq war. And they will do anything to get rid of him, which means, you know, in 2008, during the financial crisis at the end of the Bush administration, voters were so desperate to get rid of the Republicans and the Bush administration that they voted for an African-American candidate for president. I'm from the South, too. And I remember saying on election night, I never thought I'd live to see the day. And a lot of Americans afterwards said, a lot of Americans said, that's that's what we were thinking. We never thought we'd live to see the day. But in the financial crisis, they were so desperate for change, they said, so what if he's African-American? He looks okay, and we've got to have change. If that's the way Americans feel in 2020, they're fed up with Trump. They don't think he's qualified. And they didn't think he was qualified when they voted for him in 2016. If they're mm-hmm. if they're really desperate for change in 2020, then just about any Democrat can win. Mm-hmm. Well, there's one more group of people uh, running next year, of course, and that's Congress. 
And in the Senate elections, we know that the roles are going to be a little bit reversed next year, and it's the Republicans that are going to be playing defense. And this will be my final question to you, and then I'm going to throw it back to David. But what I wanted to know is, has the president's latest attempt to circumvent Congress put Senate Republicans in particular in an impossible situation politically going forward with this and having to talk about it in the elections next year. Yeah, that's exactly what the president has done. Republicans in the Senate, those who have to run for re-election, and most of them next year will be Republicans, they are really in a fix because they don't want to oppose President Trump's decision to declare a national emergency because then they could be faced with a Republican primary opponent. And when Mm -hmm. Trump opposes them, he can call out an army. And his army, we saw what happened to Mark Sanford in South Carolina. His army can defeat a Republican, even an incumbent Republican senator, in a Republican primary. So they don't want to come get on the bad side of Trump's army. On the other hand, they are in Congress. They are in the Senate. And many of them are hopping mad that by doing this, by declaring an emergency, President Trump is doing an end run around Congress. He's violating the Constitution, which gives the power of the purse particularly to Congress and only to Congress, uh, and they feel as if he's really defying the will of Congress, which, of course, is exactly what he's doing. Uh, So they're in a fix. They don't know which way to go. Um, Well, a a final question on that. Could Mitch McConnell simply settle it by not allowing any floor vote to take place regarding this? Well, Well, if the House of Representatives passes a resolution disapproving, uh, denouncing the president's uh, emergency declaration. The law says that has to be voted on within, I think, about two two weeks by the Senate. The Senate will have no choice. McConnell can't make that decision. It will have to come to a vote in the Senate. Now, it's possible that it will pass uh, with solid Democratic support and a few angry Republicans who don't like the president defying the powers of of the Congress. But the president can veto it, and I don't think they're going to have enough votes in the House or Senate to override a veto. That takes a two-thirds vote. But still, a lot of Republicans are going to be on the spot on that vote because they have to either give in uh, and support the president. uh, And and at the same time, if they do that, they will be weakening the powers of Congress, which they're there to represent. So it will remain a very tough choice. Wow. Well, I thank you for that, and with that, I'm going to send it right back to David. David? Yes, Mr. Snyder, one more question, and it kind of relates to the theme of your book about how we're less governable and more divided as a nation. Um, You were the key component, in my estimation, of a show for a long time on CNN, Inside Politics. and. it was a show where you had right-wing people, you had left-wing people, you had analysts that just looked at things objectively. Um, in the current media environment, you've got um, people that you know approach things just from the right or the left um, when they go into looking at the issue. Do you think a show like the old Inside Politics from the 90s into the 2000s could be re uh, you know, re-put on in much the same manner, or is our in political environment, media environment, just changed too much? Well, it has changed enormously. It's not an environment that I'm really comfortable with. Uh, but what you have now is uh, uh, t- television shows that really cater to a core audience, either on the right or on the left. You know, I teach college. A student once asked me in my class, is this the most divided we've ever been as a country? And I had to say to him, you know, young man, we did, once have a, had a, we did once have a civil war. Three quarters of a million Americans died in the civil war. So you can't make the argument that we're more divided than we were then. That was a terrible situation. But I would argue that we're more divided now than we've been at any time since the civil war, even more divided than in the 1960s. Uh, and that is showing up in our viewing audience, in our media. And one of the problems with it, with the media is that we have the internet now, which we didn't have when Inside Politics first went on the air 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, In the current media environment, people seek reinforcement of their point of view. 
They can find other people on the web, on the Internet, who agree with them on everything. And they want their television shows to respect to, to respond to that. So I think it would be difficult to have a show that's more objective and more balanced because it would have trouble. You said you taught college. Um, I was in college in a political science uh, program while your show was on, and I think your uh, show probably taught me as much as a lot of classes I had at 4 o'clock every afternoon from CNN. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's what we tried to do. We tried to just get – my job has always been as an analyst. I'm supposed to explain things. I'm not supposed to be an advocate who advocates a particular point of view. I have some opinions, of course. Who doesn't? But the fact is today the media is so opinionated, so opinionated, that uh, you, you really don't know what's true and what's not true, and you don't know what to believe. So what people do is they resort to the Internet, and they just link up with other people who agree with them on everything. Yes, well, we want to thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine this evening. Uh, just so wonderful to have you after watching you for so many years and now getting to read your book. <laughs> well, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. All right. That was uh, Bill Snyder. His book is Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable. Uh, you can find it anywhere books are sold. I mean, Simon, Simon & Schuster's the printer so you know it's going to be widely available and obviously with the internet as he alluded to you can find it uh, on amazon and barnes and noble and other things well tim it's just a little past eight o'clock not bad uh great to get that interview in and i think until the next show it's been the kudzu vine good night not everybody we are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world. America has created-